Good morning. Good morning. Oh, man, it's a good day, isn't it? It's a good day to hear the Lord's word. Uh, I'm going to read you a little, it's kind of a story, kind of a poem. It's called The Art of Making Bread. Once upon a time, there was a little boy in the kitchen with his mother. It was a small, bright kitchen. Light streamed in, flat slats of radiance from a window over the sink. You could see dust motes in the air like fairy dust, glittering, falling, dancing. The smell was rich and deep, the sigh of a thousand good meals. This was a place where good, skillful hands made the art of daily life. Steaming work, roasting work, piping hot treasures that danced their joy on the tongue. The boy was watching his mother make something. What are you doing, mama? He asked as he saw her taking things out of the cupboards. I'm making bread, my love, she answered. What is bread, the child asked. It is something we enjoy, she answered. She began to measure the flour, scraping the soft white excess from the top of the cup with a butter knife. The line was delightfully clean and sharp. Flour drifted and made snowflakes and snowbanks on the counter. What are you doing, mama? The child asked. I'm measuring the flour, she said. Why are you measuring? The boy asked. Because good bread must have the right amounts of the right ingredients. And what is bread? He asked again. It's something hard on the outside and soft and warm on the inside, she answered. And why are you making bread? He asked. Because bread is good. Because I have decided to make bread. It delights me to eat it and to share it with those that I love. What's that, he asked, climbing up on the counter, sitting with legs swinging. This is the sugar, she said. That's not very much sugar, said the child who loved sugar. You should add more sugar. Why don't you add more sugar? That's not the recipe, she said. The recipe is the instructions for making things. She anticipated his question before he asked it. I'm following my recipe, an ancient recipe, the best recipe. I don't think I will like your bread, said the boy. Not enough sugar. We'll see, answered the mother, simply and with great love. What's that, he asked. It's the yeast. It's special. It's magical. It's what makes the bread rise and swell with delicious sweetness. Can I see, he asked. When it's time, she said. I want to see it now, the child answered, suddenly annoyed. I want to see something magical. Show it to me now. It takes time, said the mother. This is how you make bread. This takes too long, whined the child. Bread is stupid. Bread is boring. The mother just smiled. Sometimes it's hard to wait, isn't it? She said, using her scarred wooden spoon to stir up the mixture. The child grew and grew. Soon his head was now to her elbow. His questions became more pointed. She was kneading the dough, fingers so methodical it was like watching music or the sea. So wise were those fingers, so full of confidence and glory and joy. She worked the dough this way and that. Why are you so rough with it, so mean to it, he asked. This is how you make bread, she answered. This is how you work that magical yeast throughout the mixture. I don't like it, said the boy. It looks mean. She smiled. I'm making bread, she answered simply, as if that were an answer. It did not feel like an answer, but rather like a tapping on the forehead. Why not make something else, he asked, like candy or pie or pudding, because I'm making bread. And bread is good, and bread is what I want to make. She answered simply, without irritation. But the words cut the boy like a potato peeler scraping knuckles. I don't like bread, said the boy. I want you to make something else. I will not eat it. We'll see, she answered, with a smile and a look of knowing. He despised that look. He was wise. That look made him feel like she thought he was not as wise as she was. But he was wise, very wise. He had built a Lego house with only the instructions and no help from grown-ups. He was wise. He resented her and her bread and her recipe and her knowing. 
He knew there was a better way. Somehow he just knew he could help her do it better if she would just listen to him. He grew and grew. Now he was up to her shoulder. His questions became even more insistent and demanding. He was very angry with her. I have decided, he announced, that you are an idiot. She was sitting on the couch in the living room reading a magazine. She looked up from her magazine. There was hurt in her eyes and also wisdom and also love. Why are you just sitting there, he demanded. I'm waiting, she answered, for the dough to rise. This is called proving the dough. The boy scoffed. Is this the magic part, he asked. What a sham. What a time-consuming, useless sham. I don't want your magical bread. I hate your bread and how you make it. Why do you hate my bread, my son? You haven't tasted it yet. A deep sadness was in her eyes. But the problem was the sadness was for him, like he was to be pitied. And he wasn't to be pitied. He had built a self-propelling car for a science exhibit and gotten an A+. He was smart. He was effective. He despised that look her looks that did not honor and affirm his fierce intellect and vibrant capabilities. He could certainly have improved her recipe, make her bread a thousand times better if she had only consulted him. She was so stubborn, this mother of his, so set in her ways, such an idiot. I hate your bread, he answered, because I think you're making it wrong. He had grown even bigger before her very eyes. She walked to the kitchen. She removed the damp tea towel that was covering the bowl, hiding the dough like a secret, the dough that had grown round as the belly of an expectant mother, something full and fragrant, smiling and rotund, something cheerful. She scattered the flour and slammed the dough, that gleeful cherub, right down. She punched down the center and began kneading again. The boy looked down upon the top of her head with eyes of rage and horror. That's too rough, he snarled. I loathe your recipe, he cried. It contains too much violence. It has too much waiting. It's too hard to make. The ingredients are all wrong. The ratios are off. I don't like how it makes me feel. It's not fair. You put a lot of some things and only a little of others, and some things get left out completely. I would not ever ever have done it this way. The tears on his face were hot. His cheeks were tight with rage. This is how you make bread, she answered. I am making bread, and this is how you make bread. The same love in her voice, mournful, standing outside the door of his heart. I don't understand it, and I don't like it, he shouted. That's because you are a child, she answered, looking up at him. No irritation, but the words still cut. You don't know the recipe. There is much you don't know, my son. This stung him more than a slap. But it hurts, he cried. Now was the time for it all to come out, the day of reckoning. If your bread were so good, why is there evil in it? Why do people suffer horrendous, unspeakable things? Why do we die? This was the boy's moment of triumph, the moment that his intellect, all wrapped together with his pain and his doubt and his power, would finally force this reckless parent to become accountable. The boy's heart was raw like meat, like road rash and bloody knuckles. His chest swelled with pain and exhilaration. In confusion, he felt himself becoming the words, breathing fire, becoming fire, beating his vengeance upon the chest of God, beating, or perhaps knocking? Who can tell? His mother answered him with unspeakable tenderness, an ocean of emotion making her voice heavy with life. This is how to make what I'm making, she answered. What are you making? The boy's shrill scream came. Something glorious, she answered. Something only I know how to make. This is a bona fide crap show, the boy screamed. I have measured all things, she answered, and I've wasted nothing. I have measured all things in my perfect measuring cups, the suffering and the love and the beauty and the evil and the joy and the timing. Precisely, I have wasted nothing. I have left out no ingredient. There are no surprises in my dough, else I would not be the bread maker. This is how to make what I am making. I can't see it, screamed the boy, veins throbbing. Was he beating or knocking, burning it all down? Who can say? Of course not, she answered. 
Your eyes are too small. Your mind is a thimble, child, and I am not finished. The boy demanded, why should I trust you? Because I am, she answered. She grew suddenly, rocketing in size. His neck bent back 90 degrees and more to try to keep her in view, but she was soon lost, lost in grandiosity and light and splendor with a voice as deep as the ocean, forceful as a thousand-foot wave against the hardness of his chest. Awe was being extracted from him, pride from his heart like a sneeze, longing engulfed him because I am your mother and your father and your life. She answered, I am your brain synapses. I am the breath in your lungs. I am your lungs. I am your language. I am your thought. I am your cells. I am your atoms. I am the, pre- I am the presupposition and pre- precondition that undergirds your very being. You are not saved that I am. Yes, you must choose. Yes, you are responsible for your actions. Yet I am the framework by which the gift of choosing has been offered to you. You were not free lest I invented freedom. And not, ask not why you should trust me, son. Ask rather why you have life and breath and being and thought and volition and language by which to trust anything. Or know what trust means. Or know that anything means anything. The boy paused for a moment, savoring awe, the feeling of reaching out with your arms and all your being and not being able to touch or even sense the nearest walls. And then he asked gently, obediently, even reverently, why do I exist? The old smile appeared above him a hundredfold, a millionfold, thrilling his insides. That smile with all its patience and knowing and love, you exist to delight in me, the one who loves you, and that I may delight in you because I make beautiful and glorious and delicious things to share with all that I choose. And in smelling your fragrance, all will know that I am good. And in tasting your sweetness, all will know that I am sweet, for I am the bread maker, and you are my bread, my special, sweet, wonderful, mysterious, delicious, beloved bread. And that's the art of making bread. So, man, maybe you should have saved that for the end. I don't know. Uh, so with that, that that's, uh, sometimes I'll lead out with a poem to try to kind of get our hearts into, into the, right, the right condition um, as we then deal with the mind and go into what the Word of God says. So we're going to be covering uh, Genesis chapter 41. And if you remember uh, last week, uh, the end of Brian's sermon, we, we, uh, we end up with Joseph still in prison, and Joseph seeming to think he's got a, a chance, he's got a shot to try to get out, uh, and, uh, and then we'll see what happens from there. So to give you a sense of where we're going, uh, the framework that I gave before for, Jason, for Joseph's life when I first started covering it was the idea of the promise, the process, perfection, Right, So there was, it was those three that we kind of covered in detail. And I'm going to add a fourth one today. It's called the procession, or you might call it the triumphal procession. Right, So four Ps now, promise, process, perfection, and procession. So we're going to, co- we're going to cover that. And we're going to get to the place where, where we're trying to really get our minds around the idea that our God has a plan to exalt himself through us. Amen. Like, he's going to do that, right? As surely as he is God, and as surely as God cares about his own glory. How much does God care about his own glory? A lot? Infinitely, maybe? And yet he's also chosen to get his glory through human beings, which means there's a certain amount of assurance that comes from that. Amen? Is God going to get his glory out of you? For all those who are born of him, he's going to get his glory. So a couple scriptures that I'm going to come back to later. The first one is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, and it is, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. There's a lot to say about this verse. There's a lot contained in that verse, and we're going we're gonna to just bathe in it today, right? You know, I've got two things underlined, at the proper time, right? At the proper time. Who decides the proper time? God decides the proper time. And then the last thing, he cares for you. Man, if only we could believe that, right? If we could only believe that, that would carry us a long way, that he actually cares for you and that everything he does is a reflection of his love. Hard to get your mind around that sometimes, amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God. This is the other one. Oh, man, the scripture is something. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, right? Always leads us in triumphal procession. So we're going to start dealing with that triumphal imagery, right? Like, like God making a display of his people so that all can see his glory. Amen? That's part of what we're a part of. All right, so now we get to talk about how Joseph, we get to see those principles happening in the story of Joseph. So, uh, so this first section is called The Waiting of Joseph, right? And I'm going to go back to the, to the last verse of chapter 40, uh, where it says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Amen? He, see, he forgot him. Right, Joseph, and, and you can see that Joseph, Joseph is thinking to some degree because he wouldn't have asked if, if, if that were not the case. He's thinking this is a man who has favor with, or, or, or that is going to have right because prophetically he knew this is a man that's 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 going that's in a, a trusted position with Pharaoh. This is a man who can help me, right? Obviously, because he says, "Help me." <laughs> he says, "Don't forget me. Don't leave me in this pit when what I told you comes to pass," right? And so, so there, there, there's this maybe ray of hope, and, and, and then here is, here, is, here is what happens. Here is God's response, right, to, to that whole scenario, and after two whole years, right? So let's just, let's just soak that in for a second, right? Whoever has, has thought they were like getting to the end of the race or the end of the challenge, right? The end of the pain that they were in. And then all of a sudden, it's like, nope, just kidding. You got to still endure, right? That can be very disheartening, right? Like you try to think about what were those two years like for Joseph, right? Were they harder than the, than the preceding ones, the preceding decade that came before that? We don't know, but man, that could have been some dark years for him, Right? Because this is the only attempt that we see that he ever made to advocate for himself or to get himself out. And this is how it ends. Two more years of darkness. And then Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. The Nile. So uh, I'm going to ask this question. You know, you think, do you think Joseph got tired of waiting? <laughs> right? Do you think he got tired of waiting? And can we identify with what it feels like to be waiting for so long for the Lord to do something that seems so necessary to be done to where you just feel like you can't, you can't take it anymore, and yet God says, well, here's another year of that, right? Um, it happens. And so now we get into Pharaoh's dream. And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass, and behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. Pardon me. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. All right, 
So Pharaoh has this very disturbing interaction, right? He knows that this is, this is not just your average ordinary dream. He knows that this dream is somehow prophetic, somehow powerful. And, and the evidence is he goes to these great extents to get the interpretation, right? And where does he go? He goes to the representatives of his gods, right? These gods of Egypt that are not gods at all. And he says, I need you to help me, right? I need your help. And what happens? What's the response? The response is none of them can help him, right? No one has the answer. His gods and the wisdom that was at his disposal fail him entirely, right? And so, you know, we can make a really, really quick little uh, association there. Isn't it the case with all of us that our gods have to fail us for there to be room for the living God to come and save us, right? The, the, things, the things that we trust in, right? Obviously, he trusted in, in, in magicians. He trusted in his gods, and he needed to be failed by those things, right? That needed to happen for him to be open to um, being assisted and have help from the living God. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. All right, so, so what's striking about this? What's striking about this is, you know, we get to see God's timing. So, you know, I use that phrase in the very beginning, right, that, that, that the proper time, the idea about the, the proper time, like God has a proper time for things. And so obviously what we're seeing is now it's time, not two years ago, which would have been Joseph's time, right? But God's time is now. And so God is moving, and, and he brings Joseph back to the memory, right? Have you, got, you, have you heard that verse? The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he wills, right? Like so often we think we're in the hands of man, right? We think we're in the hands of humans. We think we're in the hands of economies. We think we're in the hands of situations. There, there's all these things we think, but truly, truly, truly beneath it all, we are in the hands of God, right? Amen. God is the one who determines what happens and what befalls us. And so that should cause us to, to put less weight on what man can do for us or do to us, right? As we draw closer and closer to this being a reality in our hearts and not just theology in our brain. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. You hear that? The pit, that's where he was. And when he, had shaved, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, right, because he's obviously prison filthy, right, he came in before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, you've got to listen to this. What we, what we get to see here in, in these other stories, too, that we're listening to is we get to see how God prepares a person, right? Like, we get to see that God, God's got to knead that dough, right? And it doesn't look pretty, and it makes us flinch but then what it produces can't be produced any other way, amen? So watch, watch what happens. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, do you hear this? He is in the presence of Pharaoh, the king of all, right? Like this massive, mighty king. And we know, he already knows. Like, what did Pharaoh do to the baker, man? Like, Pharaoh doesn't play. He will kill you. Pharaoh will string you up and hang you, and you will die, and birds will eat your flesh. That's Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh makes a statement, and, and Joseph corrects him, <laughs> right? Joseph says, actually, not me. But God, right? He points to God. What, what, what was happening to Joseph in those two years, amen? To make him be able to jump right out of prison and give glory straight to God. Do not, right, like, without hesitation. Like, I can't help you, but God can help you, 
right? Like this experience that he's been through has produced a man who stayed faithful and who is faithful no matter who he's talking to, who's faithful in front of perhaps the most powerful man in the world at the time and just remains faithful and gives his testimony of who God is, not who he is. Amen? And so we get to see humility in him. We get to see boldness in him. And we get to see all these, we get to understand that it was for such a time as this that Joseph was being prepared, right? And now we're going to start, get to start seeing what he was being prepared for. Then Joseph, or then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. And then he goes ahead and he reviews the, the ugly cows, ate the luscious cows, and the nasty corn, ate the plump, wonderful, delightsome corn. And, uh, and I told, and he ends with, and I told it to the magi- magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me, Right? I I tried to get an answer from all of the avenues that were available to me, all of the power and influence that I have, the gods that I trust in, the wisdom that I trust in, and they all failed me. Can you help me? Right? Conditionally prepared. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them and the seven are the seven years. And the seven empty and blighted ones by the east winds are also seven years. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Right? He's bringing it right back to God. What is God doing? I'm here to tell you, Pharaoh, what God is doing. Right? The God of the universe. I'm going to tell you what he's doing. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten. Famine will consume the land. Doubling of the dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And then he gives him the advice. Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the plentiful years. And... Ultimately, that will form a reserve that will hold you up against the famine that will come. So, what we see here is, A, Joseph comes full full of God's wisdom and God's prophecy um, to solve the problem. We also see Joseph does not put himself forward. You notice that? Now, we know that Joseph is a very capable man. Everything he puts his hand to prospers. And this is exactly the kind of thing that he does. Like, this is his bread and butter. Give me disorganization. I'm going to handle it. You can, go to, you can go to sleep. The person that's my boss, you get to sleep, rest easy, because I will handle everything. Like, that is his entire testimony. You know, do you think he doesn't know that he's the right man for the job? <laughs> and yet, what does he say? Go find somebody. Go find somebody. Now, that reminds me of Proverbs chapter 25, 6, and 7. This is a slight, slight little mini sermon for you, but this verse has been so useful for me in my life, and specifically professionally. It says, uh, Proverbs 25, 6 through 7, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of the noble. Okay, so if we really believe that God is the one, like that the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, he will turn it whithersoever he will, then that keeps us from having to strive for position, right? We don't have to strive to kind of climb that corporate ladder. We don't have to uh, take our destiny in our own hands, but there's a certain level of humility and detachment that we can have, right? When that job, that promotion comes up and somebody's gonna get it, right? Or whatever it may be in your life where we get that, we get that feeling like, man, I, better, I, I, I gotta be down for myself because no one else is. Well, see, that's not true. Because God sees, and it is better to allow God to move in the hearts of humans on your behalf, right, and to be prepared to receive it. And yes, you work with all of your might. Like, yes, you do everything as unto the Lord, but you leave the results to God, and that's going to relieve you from worry and stress and a sense of having to kind of just scramble and claw to get what's yours, which is what they do in the world. But see, that's not what we do, amen? And I believe we get to see that in Joseph right here. 
right? He doesn't put himself forward. And what does the Pharaoh do? He calls him forward into it. So Joseph's procession, right? So now we get to see the, the triumphal procession literally happen, right? The thing that this has been building up towards, we've got pro- the prophecy, we've, or we've got the promise, we've got the process, we've got the, we got the perfection, the fact that God's working in Joseph's heart throughout all this suffering and this pain and this tribulation, which might seem to us overkill and unnecessary, and yet it's producing something inside of Joseph. And now we're about to see another, another chance of the triumphal procession where God's going to make a show of Joseph, right? And again, this is cyclical, right? Like this, this has been happening all along, right? Because first he comes in as a slave into Potiphar's house, and before long he's running, he, he's, God makes a show of him, he's running the whole household, Right? Like, that's, right? Like, that is a show, that God's showcasing him. Um, and then he gets falsely accused, show, thrown into prison, and pretty soon he's running the prison, right? God's making a show of him. And now God's about to make a show of him for the, for the whole country to see. This, pleased, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh said to, jo, said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? You see this pagan Man, acknowledging Yahweh, <laughs> right? Like, what could make a Pharaoh acknowledge Yahweh? Only Yahweh himself through his vessel. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride, listen to this, he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt, right? He's making a show of him, right? He's in the chariot. And everywhere he goes, it's like, y'all bow the knee right now for this slave Hebrew who's been in prison for the last 13 years. You understand what I'm saying? That's the man you're going to now bow your knees to. It's like, what is God doing? Like, what is God showing us? Like, what can God not do? Can that not just seep into our hearts and for us to understand? Like, this is what God does. Throughout Scripture, this is what he does. This is his pattern. This is his plan for his saints, right? And, and we get the joy of knowing it's not just a one-time event. Like there will be a time when we are exalted and glorified and, and God crushes Satan under our feet. Like that's coming. But this also happens on this earth, amen? Cyclically, as we go through God's process, right? As we receive his promise, go through his process, um, we, we gain more perfection. We gain more maturity of who he is. And then he's going to just showcase us through the procession. He's going to showcase us and say, this is my son. This is my daughter. This is what I do inside my children. Amen? Whoo! They're going to have me popping out of my skin. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. And so I'm going to take you right back to 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Right? And, when, and that, that triumphal procession would have been a familiar image in Rome, right? Because in Rome, when, 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 you caught, when there was a, a great victory, a great military victory, that army gets to come home and enter the gates to the sound of shouting and praise and incense. And people are going wild, and they're just walking through the streets with their captives and with their spoils and with the soldiers, right? And everybody gets to see that's what glory looks like, right? They get to see and taste the glory. 
And that's what God does with us through Christ. Amen? That's what he's doing. I'm going to give you a sweet example of, like, like just, a, just a regular example of something I saw. So in the Winter Olympics, this was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. Y- y'all know Sean White, the snowboarding dude? So, uh, so he, he, he they, get, they get two chances. They get two runs, so to speak. And his first run was so good that on the merit of his first run, he already had won the gold. <laughs> you understand? Like, everybody got their two in, and then, it was, and, then, and then he's last to do his second run. He literally could have just thrown his snowboard away. You understand? Because it, he had already won the gold medal. And so at this moment, you get to see, like, his team comes around him. They're going absolutely wild. And you see his coach grab his head in his hands, and he says, you get to do whatever you want. You get to do whatever you want. And so what does Sean White do? He goes out, and he tries this crazy sick move that had never been done before, lands it, gets a better score. You see what I'm saying? But if you could have just seen the joy in that man, right? Like the glory, the victory of knowing that the battle had already been won. You know what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? Man, tell me there aren't some parallels with, if we could hear it, if we could hear it, if we could understand, like Jesus did that for us, amen? Like we're on the second run right now. Didn't he say, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world, past tense? Why would that make me cheerful? Because his victory is my victory, amen? We don't think like that. We think, oh man, look what's happening here in the world. Look what's happening there. Look at all this oppression. What's going to happen to my freedoms? What's going to happen to me? And it's like, no, nah, you're, you're Sean White. You already won. Like, if we, like, 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 like so much of life is the process of letting the word become flesh, amen? Like the word is true. Our grasp upon it is sometimes weak, right? So God, give us a stronger grasp so we can live like what is true is true, Amen? triumphal procession. I love that. I love that image. And, and again, like, like what I, what I want to just hammer down is like the Lord will do it. <laughs> you understand? Like we so often think it's on us. Like I got to get myself out of this or I got to get here. Or I got to get there. Or I got to do this. Or I got to do that. It's like, no, the Lord will handle that. Amen. Like he will, but his timing just isn't necessarily congruent with ours. Right? Like, Joseph could have been really disappointed that his one chance went away, his one chance for freedom. No, man, God is your only chance for freedom. Amen? Not that dude that happens to to hold the king's cup of wine. Like, God, God holds your destiny in his hands, and he's already promised that he will exalt you. Amen? Come on. Good news for y'all today. So some advice for you. Let's remember, first of all, that God makes beautiful things with the basest of materials. Amen? He takes this dirty Hebrew slave and makes him the king of Egypt. Why? Because he's God and because he loved him and because he loved his people. Because they deserved it? Because they were worthy? No, he just loved them. That's why. And so I would appeal to you, don't belittle God by making yourself the one problem he can't solve. Do we do that? Yes, we do. Man, let us repent of such things. Because God will see to his glory, amen? God will see to it in his time and in his way, which allows me to just chill out a little bit. Yes, I work hard. Yes, I, yes, yes, I seek the Lord. Yes, I strive. But then there's also this sense in which I'm totally relaxed because I know that, all of, that these hands can't save me anyway, right? That the sum total of all of my efforts are just sand in the Grand Canyon, right? It takes God to get it done. Whew. All right, so the rest of the chapter... I'm, I'm going to skip. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to skip the rest of the chapter. And I am going to have the worship team come up. I've got a lot more to cover, and I've got to decide what 
what is actually the most necessary for us. Um, but let me go ahead and pray, and then I'll, um, I'll come back up during the response time. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you, Lord God. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for how consistently you show us the cycle of the promise, the process, the perfection, and then the procession, Lord God. We get to see it throughout Scripture. And in, in showing us this pattern over and over and over again, what you're giving us, Lord God, is such a gift. You're giving us such insight into the way that you deal with your people, and therefore we can look at our circumstances and we can know of a certainty that they are from your hand, Lord God, and that you have a purpose and that you always have a purpose and that there is nothing random happening to us, Lord. And isn't that our biggest fear is that we're trusting in this God and, 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 and really we're in the hands of chaos? <laughs> Like, really, he, he might let us down, and we might be ashamed, and it's like, we, we fear those things sometimes, Lord. But I pray in the name of Jesus that you would cause us, Lord, by the testimony of your scripture, and even by the testimony of our own lives, Lord God, to see and to know and to grasp and to, and to be renewed in confidence, Lord, that, that an exaltation is coming at any given moment, Lord God. We're somewhere in this process, and the place that this process ends is in a manifestation of your goodness, and in an exaltation. And we don't get to know what that looks like. We don't get to know the timing. We just get to know that you will not leave us ashamed. You will not forsake us. But in the midst of it, Lord, your plan is perfect and you are perfect in all of your ways. Not perfect in some of your ways. Not perfect in the ways that uh, make us feel good. Not only perfect in the ways that we can truly, that we feel like we can understand and agree with and get on board with. But Lord, you're perfect in all of your ways. And that is hard for a, a frail human being to hold. And so I pray, bridge the gap for us. Give us a little more faith, Lord God. Give us a little more confidence. Help us to be a little bit less on the fence. You know, it's almost like sometimes some of us here are just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and to realize that this whole thing we trusted in was just a fantasy all along, Lord. And I pray that you'd meet us in that place and supernaturally minister to our hearts so that we can go and walk and know that no matter what may come, we cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us worship and rejoice in you, I pray, today with renewed vigor and strength and love and affection and adoration for who you are. And that for anybody in this room who is holding on to just that little bit of God is good, I think he's good, except for this. I could give God everything except for that. I can trust everything in my life to God wholly except for this. I just pray that you'd cut that tie, Lord, whatever tie there is to doubt, whatever tie there is to fear, whatever tie there is to thinking that, you know, maybe he won't come through for me. And let us live as if the promise is true. And I pray this in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So we get to continue with response time. Uh, a, couple, a couple things uh, to kind of drive, drive the point home. Uh, sometimes we despair over God ever coming through for us, or we despair even of our own selves becoming fruitful, or of us being exalted and showcased. It can seem laughable to us that God could actually do something with us, but it's inevitable. Because 1 John chapter 5 says, uh, and I forget the verse, but it says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And so a couple things to just, for, for us to understand. When I say inevitable, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give us some sense of assurance 
that the Lord knows what he's doing and he knows his timing and that you're not exempt from his timing. So we've got John, so, so a couple, you know, how do, we, how do we grasp that? Like how does that become conviction and assurance for us to help us then walk through the challenges that we have in front of us? And I've got a couple scriptures for you to hold that are, that are precious to me. First one's John 15, verse 8. By this, this is Jesus talking, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now you see what God's doing there? He's tying his own glory to your bearing of fruit. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's a glory issue. Is God serious about his glory? However serious God is about his glory, that's how serious he is about you bearing fruit. Does that mean he's going to see to it? Yes, he's going to see to it. There's some assurance in that. 2 Corinthians 2.14, he always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Does it say he sometimes leads us in triumphal procession? It says he always leads us in triumphal procession. Amen? Your life is a victory lap. Amen? doesn't always feel like that. But let faith tether you to that reality that it is. That it is that. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you, right? Do we get to see that with Joseph? Was Joseph humble? Yeah, he was humble. Did he stay right where God put him? Did he, did, right? Like, did, did, he, did he allow himself to be even mistreated and allow unjust things to happen to him without trying to fend for himself, trusting that God, the righteous judge, would come through for him. Yes, he did. He was a humble man. And did God exalt him? Yes, God exalted him. And might God exalt you or will God exalt you? Amen? Humble yourself and he will exalt you. And then last and very similar to the prior, 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And that's where I want to leave us, is that he cares for you, right? And so for those of us who say, you know, a loving, I, I, can't, I just can't see a loving father treating his child like this, right? I just can't see it. All I have for you is, is a consistent historical biblical record of the same process that's happening to you in its completion happening to saints throughout history, amen? All I have for you is that yes, it takes a supernatural faith for us to be tethered to those realities, but what I also have for you is a promise that God said it in his word. He cares for you. That's why you can cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Do, do you believe that he cares for you? Do you believe that God's crazy about you? And that the way he shows it is not by keeping you from suffering, but by allowing you to suffer? He loves you that much? And he has such plans for exaltation for you that it's not even, the cost is not even to be compared to what the reward is going to be through it. May God give us the grace to believe that not only in easy times, but, but man, for that to become dear to us in hard times. And I'm not just speaking to you as a dude who doesn't endure hard times. The Lord has had me pressed beyond measure to the point where I'm on my, on my face and not even able to breathe. You understand? Like, like, this is the places where we find ourselves. And this God is the one who will who will take us out of the pit, that will see us pulled up out of that pit and will make a show of us. Will make a show of us. Will bear fruit through us. Will have us looking at, at, looking at our circle and, and being like, well, I know I'm not a king. All these people over here bowing the knee to me and I'm just a slave in a dungeon. You understand? God loves doing that with slaves in dungeons. God loves the hard cases. God loves your pathetic situation. And when he does what he's going to do, 
and they put you in front of Pharaoh and say, well, how did that happen? You're, gonna not, you're not going to have any, any uh, thought of saying, well, I, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. You're going to have been so broken that you're only going to be able to say Jesus. Amen? And let it be. Let's continue to worship. Oh, I forgot. Hey. I'm sorry, guys. All right, so if you don't know this God, man, I, I try to paint the picture of, of, of an exalted and a glorious God. And if you do not know this God, um, I call you to be born again, right? To be a vessel for his glory because that's why you were made. Your existence has no purpose if God isn't your purpose. And so I would call upon you this very day to get on your face. To get on, not, you don't have to do that in front of us, but man, to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ who takes slaves and broken people and makes us into a testimony of his goodness. Call to repentance. Man, as I'm praying this, man, there might be unbelief, right? There might be places you've doubted God, that you've criticized God, that you've been upset with God, all those things. And these are all natural. God can handle those things. But he also calls us into repentance for such things, right? Repentance of my thinking that I know better than God because that is our sin in this culture, maybe more than anything else, is that we think that through knowledge we get to a place where we know better than God and that he needs to be subordinate to what we think he should do. And I would call you to repent. I'll call you to giving, which is a part of that fruit that God's working in you, right? We've got giving back here. We've got giving in the back where you can give uh, give. Um, you know, between you and the Lord as you, as you determine to do. I want to call you to remembrance and communion because I want you to remember, right, the blood that was poured out and the flesh that was torn so that we could be exalted, right, so that that could be a reality for us. And then finally, I want to call you to prayer. We got to get prayed for, right? You're not intended to do this alone. We're intended to lock arms with other believers, to be honest and transparent about what we're dealing with, and then for, for these other believers to become vessels for the Holy Spirit to empower us in our lives. Who's ever experienced that before, right? Broken and messed up, and somebody came and prayed for you, lifted you up off the floor, and set you in the right direction, amen? Get that today, and now we're going to worship.